If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 over in the New Testament. We spent the last few weeks in the book of Genesis, and we're doing a pretty big jump over to the book of Romans. Uh, We are in the fourth week of our Easter series, uh, and um, kind of to, to catch us up, and I said this last week, but the series... We're in our fourth week, and each series is kind of like an individual link in a chain, and they've all got to connect together if this is going to make a whole lot of sense. And so just to kind of reconnect us a little bit, uh, a few weeks ago we were in Genesis 1, and we talked about how God is the, the creator of everything, and as the creator of everything, he has all authority, uh, and we're all accountable to him. Right? That was week one. And then uh, week two, we just... Next chapter over, Genesis 2, we look specifically at uh, God's design for man. How God created man uh, in his image and likeness and how uh, as, as, we, as he created us, we were to reflect his goodness and his glory in creation like he created us uh, for a, a purpose, right? To be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and uh, subdue it and exercise dominion uh, over his creation. And, and yet even in sort of that that authority that he gave us to steward over his creation, we are still under his authority. We're still accountable to him as uh, as the creator. And then uh, last week, we were in Genesis 3. Last week was the bad news. If you missed it, don't worry. I've got more bad news for you this morning. Okay? I don't want you to miss out. Um, But... But right, last week we talked about sin, and sin entered the world and fractured uh, everything. Right? And, and the reason that we talked about the bad news of sin and, and how it broke everything, uh, it's kind of like I just prayed, until we wrap our minds around the significance of, of how bad the news is, we will not appreciate how, appreciate how good the good news is. And so uh, that was last week, the bad news that, that sin entered into the world, fractured everything, broke everything. Our relationship with God uh, is now fractured. Uh, But but for our purposes this morning, the most significant consequence of Adam and Eve's sin and the the entrance of sin into the world was that now every generation from Adam and Eve is marred by the effects of sin. All of us. The next chapter, Genesis 4, we're introduced to Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel out of anger and jealousy, right? You see the effects, the consequences and the effects of sin that God spoke about at the end of chapter 3. You see it playing out in real time in Genesis chapter 4. You fast forward a couple more chapters to Genesis 6, and you've got the time of the flood, right? God looks out over the, the world, and it's so corrupt, and, and there's so much depravity that God floods the earth to sort of douse the flames of the, the dumpster fire that sin created. Right, so, so what I'm getting at is like it's, it's a pretty bad picture here. Right? And really the, the whole Old Testament is the story of God's people sort of swinging like a pendulum. There's some seasons of obedience and, and submission to God and to his authority and to his, uh, his kingship or lordship. And then there's Oh, it feels like a whole lot more seasons where they're back over here and they're rebelling, uh, rejecting God's authority, right? just, just forgetting all the good things that he had done for them. Right? And, they, and they rebel 
against him. That's, uh, that's the story of the whole Old Testament. And then, listen, that's still happening today. Right? That's still happening today. What started in Genesis 3, still, thousands of years later, we feel the effect of today. And so this is, this is how, how Paul kind of addresses this in Romans 1.18, the fact that, that from Genesis 3, sin continues. We've all rejected God's authority. We've, we've all rebelled against him. Uh, and because we've rejected him and rebelled against him, we're deserving of his wrath. See, I told you I had more bad news for you, right? Here's how Paul writes it. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Right, so, so by default, by our very nature, all of us, everyone in this room, everyone outside of this room, rightly deserving of God's wrath and punishment for our rebellion against him, our rejection of his authority. That's, that's all of us. Right, that's the human story since Genesis 3. Okay? Right, our... Our unrighteousness is what Paul calls it here. We're going to talk about righteousness quite a bit this morning. It's our unrighteousness, sin, rebellion, rejection of God's authority that rightly deserves God's wrath. Right? In fact, I know that's not popular to talk about in the world today. Right? The, the fact that there's a creator who has authority and whenever we step outside of that authority that we deserve to be punished for it. Because right? we kind of live in a time where it's like you define your own truth, apparently. Uh, but that's not what's happening here. Right? That's not what's laid out for us in, in the Bible. And so um, what I want to kind of lay before you is that, <clears throat> is that we know intrinsically in us that God has to punish evil. He has to punish wickedness. He has to punish rejection and rebellion. Because right? we all recognize evil in this world. Like we, you saw it this week on Monday. You read the headlines about what was going down just down I-65 in Nashville. Like you, you saw that in your mind. You were like, man, that's evil and that's wicked and, and there is some justice that needs to be served. Right? And so a God who turns his back on evil and wickedness like just pretends like he didn't see anything and kind of sweeps it under the rug, that's, and that, that makes... It makes God like a moral coward, right? If God sees evil and he sees rejection of his, his good and perfect and right boundaries, if he sees that and he just pretends like he didn't see it, like wouldn't that be a God that's detestable to us? Right, so we rightly want a God that when he sees evil and when he sees wickedness, he punishes it. But if we're honest... Right? We just don't always want a, a God that, that punishes the evil and wickedness in our own hearts. Right? That's when the rub is like, oh, punish that evil, but this evil, right? And yet he, he must punish it. He must penalize it. Or he would not be good. He would not be just. Right? So, so here we are find ourselves this morning, all of us, by default, rightly deserving God's wrath, punishment, penalty for all of our unrighteousness. And there's a lot of it. 
Aren't you, aren't you thrilled you came to church this morning? All right, so, so that's the bad news. But the good news, actually, let me rephrase that. So that's the bad news, but the gospel is good news. And the good news is what we're here for this morning. So look with me, Romans 3. That was quite an introduction, wasn't it? Romans 3, here we go. Starting in verse 21, read all the way through verse 26. Paul writes this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show, excuse me, God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what Paul does here, let me, here's the contrast. I, I read earlier Romans 1.18 that talked about the wrath of God poured out on our unrighteousness. But here Paul redirects our attention away from our unrighteousness to when he says the righteousness of God. And, and according to Paul, the righteousness of God, he says, has been manifested, been made visible, uh, been put on clear display apart from the law. Okay, so... In other words, you and I, in our unrighteousness, cannot become righteous, cannot make ourselves righteous just by keeping the law, God's law. When I say law, I'm talking about the Old Testament, all these laws that God laid out. You and I cannot become righteous before God. We cannot do away with our unrighteousness uh, through perfect obedience. We will not make ourselves righteous by sort of uh, religious rule keeping. That's exhausting. That's called legalism. The idea that you can make yourself righteous before God by sort of obeying all these laws and commands. And if I do it right and if I do it consistently enough, then God will look at me and he will approve of me and he will call me righteous. Now listen, God does call us to holiness. God does call us to sanctification. Right, but that's a work that he does in us, not a work that, that we arrive at just by our own good behavior. Right? L- legalism is exhausting. And legalism, if you're not careful, will lead you straight to hell, con- convincing yourself the whole way that you're in good shape because you're pretty good at obeying the rules. So what we're after is, is righteousness and what... The righteousness of God that Paul talks about, it doesn't come from the law. It's been made manifest apart from the law. And so there's a reason why Jesus is constantly confronting in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The people that Jesus is constantly butting heads with are not the people whose lives are a wreck. 
Right? The people who Jesus constantly butts heads with are the people who think that they've got it all together because they're really good at keeping the rules. Right? The Pharisees. Right? There's a reason why Jesus early on in the Sermon on the Mount, his longest recorded teaching says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And what he's talking about, like the righteousness exceeding that of the Pharisees, he's not talking about in terms of quantity. Like you've got to obey more and obey better than the Pharisees. Because right? those cats were like first team all Israel when it came to obeying the law. Right? I mean, they, like they obeyed the law. They were good at it. And then when they were like, you know what, this is too hard. Let's add some rules on our own and obey those too. And so when he's talking about your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, he's not talking about exceed in terms of more. He's talking about exceed in terms of, of quality, not quantity. A completely different kind of righteousness is what you need to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's not a righteousness that, that you're going to dig down inside yourself and find. It's a righteousness that comes from outside of you. And it's like an, an alien righteousness right, that, that you can't obtain on your own because it's, like I said, it's not somewhere deep inside of you that you just have to dig in and realize. And so we're back to the problem here. And we've got, we're unrighteous, is what Paul said. We've got this righteousness of God. And we can't make ourselves righteous, which means we need a righteousness from somewhere else, from someone else, which is what Paul says next. Look at verse 22. <clears throat> he says, the righteousness of God, so that's what we're after, right? The righteousness of God, and here's where we find it, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The, the righteousness that we're looking for, the only righteousness that will enable us to stand on the day of of judgment is not found in an activity. It's not found in a behavior. It's not found in religious rule keeping. Uh, it's not found in some achieved or, or realized state of perfection. The only righteousness that, that we will, that we can stand on on the day of judgment, the righteousness of God, comes not from a, a thing. It comes from a person. And his name is Jesus, I put that on a T for you. Like all you had to do is hit it and you were still hesitant. Okay. Verse 22. I'll try to set you up later. Okay. Verse 22. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All right. So this is what we established last week, right? Genesis 3. We've all sinned. And, and, and by the way, we're not passive in this. Right. yes. We're all born sinful people because we're all like descendants of Adam and Eve. We're all born into sin. But we're also not passive because all of us, at one point or another, many points, have willingly give our, given ourselves over to sinful compulsions. Right? We've, we've willingly rejected, rebelled against God's authority. Right? We're, we're all unrighteous. That's universal. Right? All of us. And so this verse, Romans 3.23, if you grew up in church, show of hands, how many guys have a church background? Like you grew up in church, all right? 
Okay, so quite a, quite a few. It's all right if you didn't. I'm glad you're here. Right? If, you, if you grew up in church, you're probably familiar with this verse, part of um, what's called the Romans Road. You guys familiar with what's called the Romans Road? Uh, if you're not familiar with the Romans Road, it's basically just a series of verses that all come from Romans that are really helpful in explaining the, the truths of, of the gospel. Like, like what it, the problem of sin and the salvation that's offered to us in Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and this verse, Romans 3.23, is usually like one of the, one of the key verses in the Romans road. Right? It usually starts with Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Usually right after that comes uh, Romans 6.23, which says the wages of sin is death. Right? In fact, I meant to bring it and I forgot. Um, I think it was the week before last. Uh, there was a, uh, a guy who came to the church office to deliver some supplies uh, and I had to sign the thing for him or give him my name, whatever, and took the boxes. And before he left, he hands me a, a gospel track. Now, first of all, I didn't know whether to be offended that he felt the need to give a gospel track to the pastor, one of the pastors. But uh, right, like, there's a part of me that's like, dude, I mean, I work here. I'm at a church, all right? Um, but there's, if I'm honest, man, there's another part of me that just, I appreciate his boldness, right? Dude was just sharing the gospel with whoever God put in front of him that day, right? So, um, but, but in that gospel track, those are the first two verses, right? The Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23. But anyways, um, here's where I'm going with this. Some years ago, I'd heard Romans 23, like, all my life, Right? But some years ago, it struck me that the Romans 3.23 ends with a comma. Right now, as, as profound and important as that verse is, like that's not the end of the thought. You tracking with me? Like a comma means there's more to be said. Or there's, right, there's, there's something beyond this. Right, this is not a complete thought. And so often we stop at like 23. We never read verse 24. Right, because um, right, there, there's, there's a comma here. There's more to be said. And maybe you're like, hey, I, thanks. I know what a comma is. That's fair. But I also get your text messages and we could use a brush up on grammar sometimes. Okay. That's, <laughs> all right. This is coming off the reels. Okay. But here's, here's why I bring up the comma thing. Because there's more that Paul's saying here. Yes, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All right, but let's read the full thought. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, comma, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's a lot. If we stop at the comma and never go on past it to verse 24 and 25, we miss some significant things. Right? We miss justification. These are, I'm going to explain these words in just a minute, right? We miss justification. We miss redemption. We miss propitiation. We miss these major words that are significant. 
if we stop at the comma. So let me talk about kind of those three words uh, for a minute because really what they do is answer a question. I'm going to give you the question in just a minute. But first, let me define one of those, justification. Right? To be, the, the, the verse actually says justified, but kind of the bigger word, justification. Uh, it, it's a legal word, right? a legal word that basically means to, uh, to be declared righteous or to be declared in right standing. Okay, and that's what uh, it, God is doing here. In, in the context, right, God is replacing your unrighteousness and declaring you righteous. And in doing so, reinstates you into a relationship with himself. So that you're no longer unrighteous, you're declared righteous. And because you're declared righteous, now you can exist in relationship with a righteous God. Right, now, now, here's the question that I, I, I referenced. I'm going to read it verbatim so that I don't butcher it. How is it possible? How is it possible for God to look at unrighteous men, unrighteous women, who are fully deserving of his wrath, And declare them righteous, in right standing, without either one, compromising his own righteousness, or two, condoning our sin and rebellion and rejection of his authority. Right? How can those, how can that happen? And the answer is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. More specifically, to use the words that the, the text uses, it's found in redemption and propitiation. All right, so let's define those words, right? Big words, but they're words the Bible uses, so I think we should kind of know what they mean and talk about them, right? So, redemption. Um, most of you probably heard this word, redemption, redeem. It's this idea of, uh, at least in the, the biblical context, to, to buy something back. Right? To redeem is to, to make a purchase um, biblically, with the, with the intentions of setting that thing free. Right? To pay a price, to purchase something in order to set it free. So we see this word uh, throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, the people of God, Israel, was redeemed from slavery in Egypt, and they were set free in their own land. Okay, fast forward a little bit in the Old Testament. you got the people of Israel. They've really messed things up. They find themselves in Babylonian captivity, and God redeems them out of captivity and returns them, sets them free in their land again. Right? It's, and, and Paul is saying here, talking about redemption, that we are declared righteous, we are restored into a right relationship with God because Jesus, through his life, death, resurrection, has redeemed us He's purchased us. Right? The, the, the cross, Jesus' death on the cross, it was transactional. Right? It's not just a cool story. Like it, it serves a purpose. Right? Jesus redeemed us. He purchased us. He paid a significant price to buy us back from slavery to sin and unrighteousness to set us free from that. Right? So that we're not bound by sin 
and shame and brokenness anymore. He, he purchased us to set us free. Right? In his, his own words in the book of Mark, Jesus came uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, a payment. Right? So we are we're justified, right? We're <clears throat> declared righteous, we're redeemed, we're purchased, we're bought back in order to be set free. But it's the, the third word, propitiation, that makes all of that possible. Right? Maybe a word you're not as familiar with, but again, if the Bible uses it, we're going to use it. So here's what propitiation means. It is the, the appeasing or the satisfying of God's wrath. Right? The, the appeasing or satisfying of God's wrath, right? Remember Romans 1. God's wrath revealed towards our unrighteousness. I deserve God's wrath. You deserve God's wrath. But the good news of the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus uh, absorbed or, or propitiated all of God's wrath for our sin. Right, All of the wrath that, that your sin, that my sin, that your unrighteousness, my unrighteousness deserves, God, or Jesus absorbed all of that. So then on the cross, when, when Jesus uttered those words, it is finished, it's finished. Like, like there's nothing else to be done. He absorbed all of the penalty, all of the punishment, all of God's wrath toward, toward our sin. But what I want you to see is notice who took the initiative here. Notice, look at verse 25. It says, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Talking about Jesus. It was God that put Jesus forward. This was God's plan. This was God's design. So if I can press pause here. If you were here last week, we talked about Adam and Eve, and we talked about how they were sent out of the garden. Right? If you remember, right at the end of that, I highlighted one verse, I believe it's verse 21, maybe 22, don't have it right in front of me. Highlighted God initiating uh, his, this, this covering for Adam and Eve. Right? He's about to send them out of the garden to separate them, uh, but, but instead of sending them out in their sort of janky fig leaves, he decides, hey, uh, I'm going to sacrifice an animal to cover you. Right? And, and so God took the initiative in that. In the middle of their sin and their shame and their rebellion and their rejection of his authority, God takes the initiative. He moves towards them. He covers them, which is just foreshadowing thousands of years before what we see right here. Right? The cross of Jesus Christ where, where God, again, took the initiative sacrificed his own son to both satisfy his wrath, but also to cover us in our unrighteousness. He, he covers us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why I said earlier, when, when righteousness is, I said it's not found in, in rule keeping and, and legalism, like righteousness is found in a person and it's found in Jesus Christ. And this is what God gives to us at the cross. So at a real foundational level, here's what's happened at the cross. 
is God gave himself to save us from himself. God gave himself to save us from himself. Right, that's how, verse 26, that's how it says God is both just to punish sin and he's the justifier of all men who would trust in him. Right, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't look past our sin. Right? He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't look at it and be like, nah, you know, no big deal. People make mistakes. No, he's just that he exercises his wrath towards our sin. Right? Pours out his wrath toward our sin. But he's also the justifier in that in the greatest act of love the world has ever seen or will ever see, God took all of his wrath onto himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ who is God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, God wrapped in human flesh. In order to save his people, God poured out all of his wrath on himself. Now listen, that blows my mind in ways that like, I don't even know how to fully explain. It's, it's unbelievable. Except it's not. Right? Look at verse 22. The righteousness of God is available to you, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Right? In, in fact, that's the practical application this morning. Right, the, believe it. Believe it. Right, that, that's the, you want action steps to a sermon. There's your action step from Romans 3, 21 through 26. Believe it. Right, it sounds too easy, doesn't it? Like we, sometimes we hear sermons or when I listen to sermons, like we, we, want, we want to know what we're supposed to do. Right, like give me something to do. I want to hear the Bible, and then I need you to give me some tangible steps I can take. Put some handles on it so I can take it home with me. I can write it on my to-do list. I can do it this week. Make me feel pretty good about myself. Right? And, and there are certainly sermons that have practical steps for us to take, things for us to do, right? steps of obedience for us to walk in. But the text this morning isn't pointing us to something for us to do. It's pointing us back to something that's already been done. And, and there's, there's nothing left to accomplish for you and me. There's nothing left to achieve for you and me. Justification, redemption, propitiation has all been accomplished and achieved in the cross of Jesus Christ. So the only thing left for us to do is to actually believe it. Believe that it's true. Right? That's what the text tells us three, three separate times. I'm going to hit them real fast. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So there's one. Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received 
by faith. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith, believes in Jesus. All that's left for us to do is believe this. And I know it feels too easy. There's a reason that Jesus tells his disciples uh, that, that unless you have like, the faith of a child, isn't that what kids do? They just believe it. Right? You just tell them something, they're like, okay, I accept that. That's what we're called to do. Believe. Trust. In fact, trust is, is probably a good sort of parallel word there, because the, when I say believe, we're not talking about just belief in a historical fact. It's not just belief that, yeah, I believe there was a guy in uh, the Middle East a couple thousand years ago that, that died and rose again. I mean, that's part of it. That's an important part of it. You've got to believe like this actually happened. But that belief goes deeper than just sort of a assent to a historical fact. It's a, like it's a trust. Right? It's, it's the belief Faith, trust, that this is my only hope. If I want to be declared righteous before a righteous God, if I want to be redeemed from my sin and my shame and my brokenness, if I want, if I want to receive the forgiveness of sin, then it requires that I, I trust, I believe by faith, I'm I'm saying this is my only hope of the forgiveness of sin and the promise of eternal life is believing in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, right, or maybe you've just kind of assented to it as a historical thing, but you've never actually like just thrown yourself on it like this is my only hope. That's your invitation this morning. To, to receive forgiveness of sin, a right standing before God by repenting, turning from your sin, and trusting, believing in Jesus Christ. And like, you can actually do that right now, in this moment. Right, here's what Paul says a, a few chapters later in Romans 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's saved from the penalty of sin, saved from God's wrath. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You don't have to jump through a bunch of religious hoops to receive salvation this morning. You, you believe. There's no, there's no magical words you have to repeat. Right? There, there's no like specific prayer that if you don't get it just right, like it doesn't hold. By faith, believe, trust. You, you, you can do that right now, in this moment, in your seat. And I'll say something really scandalous in a Baptist church. You ready? Hold on. You don't even have to walk an aisle to do that. It's belief. It's trust. Right? Believe in your heart and you will be saved. 
Believe in your heart and you will be justified. But, there's always a but, right? Here's, here's the other thing I would point out. There is an element of sort of public acknowledgement here, right? Because the, those verses say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, right? You, you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth. There is an element of, of public acknowledging, right? Putting some words to your belief, because, listen, the decision to believe and trust in Jesus, it is a personal one, but it's not a private one. Right? It's not a private one. And so and if, if today is, is the day or that you're like, man, you know what? I, actually, I think I actually believe this. Right? I, I believe I've sinned. I, I believe I deserve God's wrath, but I also believe what he's saying, that Jesus took all that for me. Right? If, if maybe today is the first day that you're like, I, th- I think I believe that, then I would tell you, tell somebody. It could be somebody you came with this morning. It could be somebody sitting around you. Although I acknowledge like, that's a special kind of boldness to turn to somebody around you and be like, hey, guess what? I believe today. Right? Come tell me. Even if you want to walk an aisle and come tell me. Right? That'd be fine too. I ain't knocking it. I'm just saying you don't have to. Tell somebody. Because, listen, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but you're not saved to be alone. And there's a community of people that would love, love, love to celebrate that with you. We'd love to do that. So tell somebody. Right? Now, couple things. Maybe you're here and you've done that. You are a Christian. You say, I believe, but you've never been baptized. And that's an important first step of obedience. So here's what's really cool. Here in a few weeks, we're going to have a baptism. So if you're here this morning and you're like, hey, I've believed, I trust, I have faith in Jesus. I believe he He've died on the cross to forgive me of my sin. I believe he rose uh, to life to prove he was victorious over sin. Like, I believe that, but I've never been baptized. Come see me. Let's have a conversation. Let's get you baptized. Because as I said, there's a, there's an, a public part of this, right? There's a, there is a public acknowledgement. That is kind of the the Bible's prescribed way that you announce to everyone else, hey, I've committed my life to Jesus Christ is through baptism. So baptism doesn't save you, but it is an important step of obedience. And so if you've never done that, let's have a conversation about that. Okay? So that wasn't in my notes. Here's where I actually want to get to to kind of land the plane. For the rest of you here that are Christians, you're like, yes, I know all this. I'm a believer. I trust in Jesus. I have for years. One of the things that the Bible tells us to do is to remind ourselves of this truth. Right? To remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. Right? You, you realize all the letters of the New Testament are written, most of the letters of the New Testament are written to churches. In other words, Paul is telling these churches, reminding these churches about the gospel. 
So we're going to remind ourselves this morning, if you're here and you're a, a follower of Jesus, a Christian, you've believed, you've trusted in him, we're going to remind ourselves of that this morning by receiving the Lord's Supper. Right? The, the, the bread represents Jesus' body broken for us. The juice, the cup, represents his blood shed for us where he, where he did propitiate God's wrath for our sins, to offer us the forgiveness of sins. And so if you're here and you're a believer, in just a minute, the band's going to come. They're going to play. Uh, I want to invite you to come forward, grab those, take them back to your seat, and then we will receive them together as a church family here in just a moment. Okay, so I invite you to go ahead and stand with me this morning. We're going to pray. And we'll do just that. Father, we come to you this morning. Uh, thankful for your goodness. Thankful for your grace. We're thankful for, uh, we're thankful for the reality that these words we talked about—justification, redemption, propitiation—they're not just, they're not just big words that might impress people. They're like they're, they're significant. That you've declared us righteous in the sending of your Son Jesus Christ and His death. His resurrection, that you've redeemed us, purchased us back from slavery to sin and rebellion, or that you've satisfied your own wrath towards us in the sending of your son, Jesus. My prayer this morning, Lord, is that if there's one here that's never believed that, pray that today would be the day. Today would be the day they put their stake in the ground and they say, this is what I believe. By faith, I'm trusting that Jesus lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose back to life to pay for my sin, to declare me righteous, to restore me to a relationship with God. I pray that they would have the, the courage to tell someone that, that they believe, to come forward, to tell me that we might celebrate with them. That's what we want to do. And then for the rest of us here, Lord, that, that this is a story maybe we've heard a million times throughout our lives. We've grown up in church. I pray that it would fall fresh on us now as we receive these elements, the bread and the juice, that we would kind of remember or, or hear with fresh ears or the, the good news of the gospel. And may we remember it and the significance of it, and how good you are. So Lord, we praise you, we love you, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name.